Well, I don't know how many uh, readers we have. How many of you uh, really love to pick up a fiction book and read it? We got uh, just a few, a few readers. Yeah. If you, uh, if you're a reader of books, especially nonfiction, then you know that the first sentence of a book is absolutely pivotal. I mean, this is a, this is a critical line in the book because it's the author's chance to really capture the interest and intrigue of the reader and set the stage for everything that will come next. So if you read very much, you know that as you take in that very first line, it's going to tell you something about the book and it's going to let you know, do I want to continue in this book at all? Let me give you uh, some of the great lines of just a few uh, books in history. Charlotte's Web, which was written in 1952, begins this way. Where's Papa going with that axe? said Fern to her mom as they were setting the table for breakfast. Now that's the first line. It definitely piques our interest, doesn't it? I want to know who's Papa and, and, and where is he going with the axe and who's Fern and what's next and how will this drama resolve itself? How about the opening line to this famous book, uh, Leo Tolstoy's uh, Anna Karenina. It says this way, all happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Some have called this the most uh, well-known and famous opening line in all of literary history. Now, let me give you one you may be more familiar with. Here's the first line from C.S. Lewis's Voyage of the Dawn Treader. There was a boy named Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. <laughs> now, I don't know if you've ever read the book, you know kind of where he's going. But whatever it is, you say, okay, I want to know. Okay, who is this guy? And what does it mean that he almost deserved his name? Crafting the first line is more than just a literary technique, although it is that. It, it again, is the author's effort to set the tone for the rest of the book. Well, this is the case with John's gospel, the fourth gospel in Scripture. The first sentence sets the tone for the rest of the book. The first line will really set the stage for the rest of the entire gospel. And in fact, in one sentence, John will tackle a theological truth, a theological mystery really, that has been the focus of thousands of commentaries, tens of thousands of books, countless Sunday school discussions and seminary classes, and endless sermons. So let's get it, look at it together. John uh, chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, if you, if you read the four Gospels, you spend any time in them, you may realize that all four of the Gospels are concerned about beginnings. All four of them. The Gospel of Mark starts out, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then it tells the story of God's incredible plan of rescue to save a broken and lost world. Uh, the Gospel of Matthew, as I pointed out a few weeks ago, as we started our, our, in the middle of our Advent series, it traces the beginning, the human lineage of Jesus Christ going all the way back to Abraham. Uh, the evangelist Luke grounds his account of Jesus, which he writes to Theophilus so that those will believe and know what they believe. He grounds it in the testimony of those who were there at the beginning, he says. All the gospel writers being concerned about beginnings. 
In the Gospel of John, which actually goes back further and goes even deeper than the other three, into prehistory, you might say, it traces the account all the way back to God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Before anything was made that was made, only God existed. The universe exists at God's command and is sustained by His Word. And His glory will always be at the center of the universe. About 10 years ago, Janine and I took a trip to New York City with two other couples, very close friends of ours. Uh, all three of the guys had been before. The ladies had never been to New York City. And uh, it's a trip that will forever be remembered by the six of us as the one where John and Janine got into an epic argument on the flight home and didn't realize that everyone else in the plane could hear uh, their fight. Uh, that's a story for another time. But our friends will ask us, still ask us sarcastically, hey, how are you guys doing, you know, after the New York trip? Um, we didn't really, I don't know if you've, you've ever noticed this, but if you're in a plane, you can actually hear the conversation of people that are like 10, 12, 15 rows behind you. We didn't realize that then. Uh, we were ashamed to know that when we finally touched down to know that our friends had been listening in. But overall, we had, a, we had a great time. We stayed at a hotel right in the middle of Manhattan. We took in all the sights. We saw some Broadway shows. We uh, saw, you know, Times Square with, with all of its brilliance, the eight-story billboards, the flashing lights, the famous restaurants. We did all that stuff and had a great time. But you know what's the most fascinating thing to watch of all? Uh, it's, it's to watch what happens when tourists realize that there are cameras putting live stream images of themselves on a giant wall. And so you can watch how the tourists, how they, they kind of jockey for position, they push other people out of the way, they fight for a spot where they're going to be featured on the big screen. And once they find that place, once they realize that their mug is projected in Times Square for everyone to see, they won't move. They won't leave that spot. They're so enamored by this, by this reality that there they are in front of everyone to see. They're enamored by the image of themselves. Well, the Bible doesn't start with, this is the story of us. It doesn't start with, this is the story of humanity. It doesn't even start with, this is the story of mankind's search for God. It starts this way, in the beginning, God. And here in John 1, John tells us that the Word, who will later be identified in verse 17 as Jesus Christ, was there at the beginning. In fact, He was not only with God, He was God. In one line, John pulls together two worlds, so to speak, the Greek or the Hellenistic world, the Jewish world, and he touches on a subject that really consumed both of their interests. What is the logos? The word translated word is the Greek word logos. John says, in the beginning was the logos. Summer of 2004, I took a trip to Athens, Greece, right uh, before the Summer Olympics. And I went there to teach an evangelism seminar to folks from 27 different countries who would be engaging with people from all over the world during the Olympics. And on that trip, I had the, uh, the opportunity to walk some of the, uh, the paths of the Apostle Paul. And so followed a little bit of his missionary journey, spent some time in Corinth. And, but we spent most of our time in Athens, Greece. And Athens it still is an amazing city with uh, this incredible uh, 
part of it that is the ancient ruins that are still accessible. In fact, there's one amphitheater where in, we, we walked on, in this amphitheater, and in this amphitheater is this huge boulder. I mean, it's a massive, I don't know, maybe a story and a half boulder. And on that boulder, the Apostle Paul actually delivered his speech, his sermon in Acts 17 in Athens. It's also the same place, that platform, that boulder, is the same place where some of the world's greatest philosophers, even thousands of years before Jesus, would come and they would take the stage and in front of large audiences they would deliver their logos. Folks like Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, Pythagoras, would, they would stand in front of these folks and they would deliver they're logos. Now, the Greek word logos has a kind of a wide range of meanings. Sometimes it's referred to a, as a speech, a, a verbal defense of a particular position. Um, the Stoics referred to it as the logos as the great intellectual reason for existence. But in its broadest sense, the, the term logos simply represents, it represents self-expression. That's what it means in its broadest sense. In John chapter 1, Jesus is called the Logos, the Word of God. Jesus is God's self-expression. Jesus reveals to us God because He is God. Jesus was with God and Jesus was God. And here, John is really pushing the limits of human language here. He's straining to get every ounce of meaning out of every single word, even the prepositions to describe what's going on here. On the one hand, the word is distinguished from God. He is with God. The word with implies relationship. To be with someone means you're in relationship. I came in through that door. I walked up here. I saw people walking together. I saw this lady with another lady. I saw this man with another man. To be with implies relationship. The word was in relationship with God. He is the expression of all that God is. We could even say it this way. He is the revelation of all that is in God's mind. But on the other hand, the word is God. A different person, but one in essence. The Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians that Jesus is the exact imprint of the invisible God. He was with God and he was God. So I said at the beginning, we're going to have these three attributes. Here's the first attribute that we're going to see about Jesus through this passage. Jesus is co-equal with God the Father. So the Word of God is distinguished from God the Father. He was with God, but shares the divine nature of God. Thomas Aquinas was a writer and theologian of the 13th century and uh, when I was in seminary, I, I had to read, it was required reading to take in his Summa Theologica, which, uh, uh, which is a very difficult piece of literature. Uh, but this is, a, this is a brilliant man who lived in the 1200s. Um, and, you know, sometimes I think we, we tend to think that um, we're smarter or more intellectually advanced now than people were, say, a thousand years ago. Um, even in the era of theology. But, but I tell people, if someone comes up, to, comes up with a, a, a new theological idea that no one else has ever thought of, run from that person. Because, you know, how, how foolish is it us to, for us to believe that, that after all this time, the world has needed us to find a, finally figure things out, right? No, Thomas Aquinas was a brilliant thinker. And reflecting on this passage, he broke it down into four questions. When, where, what, and how? When was the Word in the beginning? 
Where was the word? With God. What was the word? God. How was he existing? In the beginning, with God. Edmund Clowney, who's a pastor and theologian in the 21st century, some 800 years after, or 900 years after Aquinas writes this, the word was with God, God's eternal fellow. The word was God, God's own self. Think of it this way. The word himself does not make up the entire Godhead. However, everything that belongs to the rest of the Godhead also belongs to the word. Now, if your mind is starting to hurt a little bit, you're exactly where you need to be, right? If you're at a place where you think, oh, look, I've had this figured out for years, uh, you're nowhere near where you need to be. This is, this is deep, complex, it's mysterious, it's beyond us in terms of totally figuring out. And yet, this is why this is so important, why we're diving into this so deeply, is the rest of the book of John is meant to be understood in light of this first sentence. So you can't really understand the rest of John unless we at least make some sense of this. For example, how are we going to make sense of the time when Jesus actually forgives people of their sins? Which is something only God can do, unless we understand something of this. How are we going to make sense of the time in John chapter 8 where Jesus says, Before Abraham was, I am. And there invokes the divine name. Or when Jesus says in John chapter 10, I and the Father are one. When Jesus in John 14 declares himself as the only way to the living God. When Jesus died on a cross and, and it was a work directed toward man and toward God. We can never understand this unless we make some sense of John chapter 1 and verse 1 and 2. When Jesus is raised again, taking his rightful place at the right hand of the Father. Alright, let's continue. Look at verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, we know from the book of Genesis what happened in the beginning. In the beginning, God, this Hebrew word barach, it means that God brought into existence something that didn't exist. But here's a mind-blowing wrinkle to this. When God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered into one place, it was so because Jesus made it to be so. When God spoke the word of creation, the Son was the one who carried out God's plan. He was there at creation. He has always existed. He is God the Son. Referring to Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 1, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Now, to be sure, Jesus, the son of Mary and Joseph, had an earthly beginning. It was the moment that He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Not the moment he was born. Now this will really come into play next week as we get into the sanctity of life. And it was when he was conceived. When the eternal word arrived in Bethlehem that first Christmas day, he became a human being. He entered into space and time to give us a glimpse into who God is and to be our deliverer, to be our rescuer, to be our substitute. But Jesus has always existed as God. Jesus the Logos. He is the perfect self-expression of God. And what else, what else does John say? He says, without him, nothing was made that was made. Here's our second point, the second attribute of Jesus that no one else can claim. Jesus is the agent of creation. 
And when I say agent here, don't think of a, a sports agent, somebody representing someone else in their business dealing. An agent in this case is someone who carries out the decree of another. God said, let there be light, and Jesus made the light to shine. God said, let stars fill the cosmos, and Jesus slung them into existence, poetically speaking. God said, let the waters fill the earth, and Jesus poured out the oceans, as it were. Everything that was created was created by Jesus. Even you and I were made by Jesus. In fact, one of my favorite theologians says this, if we had a microscope powerful enough to see the most minute entities in creation, imagination suspects we might detect on them something like the imprint made by J.C. Now, it's a tad bit corny, I guess, but it's absolutely true. Everything that has been created, everything that exists has the mark of the sun on it. Even you and you and I, at the deepest level of your being, down below anything you can see is the signature of Jesus, which says, you were made by me. If you are in Christ, this means not only have you been created by Jesus, you've been recreated by Jesus through faith. And because you have trusted it in him, you are now living in a way you were designed to live. You were living in fellowship with him. You were living in the way you were created to live. However, if you are not in Christ, if you've not put your faith in Jesus, if you've not turned from your own rebellion, your own independence, it means that you are living in total opposition to the way you were made, why you were made, and you were living against the one who made you. And this never works out well. Never works out well. The result will always be what Dallas Willard calls the unending soap opera, that sometimes horror show known as the human life. In other words, huge ups and huge downs, crushing failures that take forever to move beyond, the endless feeling of guilt and shame over past sins. The failure to actually rest, spiritually speaking. A lack of significance. Things don't work well when they're used against the way they were designed. Think of it this way. You would never use a chainsaw to give someone a haircut, would you? That would be stupid. It would be dangerous. It wouldn't work well. I read a few years ago, there was a lady who, uh, for some reason, she was out, she wanted to trim uh, her, the bushes in the side yard, so she picked up her lawnmower. She ended up losing her hand because of this and suing the lawnmower company, of course, you know, it was, it's, it was their fault. But she picks up a lawnmower. You don't use a lawnmower to trim tree limbs, do you? It doesn't make any sense. When I was in Grand Rapids, Michigan, the late 90s, uh, it, would, it would just snow like crazy, snow. There were times when we would get more than a foot of snow dumped on us. And in January, uh, January 2nd, 1999, we experienced what uh, is now called the Great North American Blizzard. We lived right in the heart of Grand Rapids. We got 30 inches of snow. And with drifts created by 40 mile per hour winds, there, there were places where there were five feet of snow. I walked out uh, one morning out of our on-campus apartment and to get in my car. And all I could see in my car was just the antenna. Everything else was covered by snow. And so I was, I kind of knocked all this, the snow off. I got in my car and I realized 
being a broke uh, graduate student, I didn't have an ice scraper. But my car did have a cassette player. So I, I got a cassette tape and I started scraping the windows of, you know. Well, I was able to get a, lot, a little tiny circle that I could look through. Uh, but it was dangerous. Uh, kids never do this when you grow up. This is, don't, this is dumb. Cassette tapes don't work as ice scrapers. When things are used in ways they were never designed for, it brings danger, it brings chaos, it brings depression. You were made by Jesus and for Jesus to glorify and enjoy him. His signature is on your DNA. And you will not enjoy life fully. You will not experience meaning, peace, rest, lasting joy until you repent of your rebellion and trust in him. See, the story of the Bible is that all human beings come from this person. They are sustained by this person. They have rebelled against this person. They will come again to this person, either by faith or in judgment, and will one day bow to this person, who is Emmanuel, the Sovereign One, the risen Christ, and the eternal Son of God. Now that brings us to the last section we're going to look at this morning. Look at verses 4 and 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now notice, as we're just working our way through this passage, I want you to notice that there's so much of it that really harkens back to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1 starts with three words, in the beginning. John 1 starts with three words, in the beginning. In Genesis 1, God makes something out of nothing. In John 1, Jesus, the Word, makes something out of nothing. What He creates, John says, is new life. In Him was life, John says. Jesus was the agent of creation at the beginning, and He is the agent of the new creation that we'll read about in John chapter 3. In the same way that light breaks into darkness in Genesis 1, light breaks into darkness in John 1 in the person of the Word. In the same way that something from the outside of our time-space cosmos enters our world in Genesis 1 in the form of God's creating activity, something outside of our time-space cosmos enters into the world in John 1 in the form of the God-man. And the Word became flesh. As the Word became flesh, light exploded into darkness and heaven broke into earth. And if we understand this beginning, this is so important, Something really that stood out to me in my study this week. If we understand this beginning, we will also understand there are many more beginnings that we experience in our lives. See, so often when John talks about light, and this is a theme we're going to see, especially through the first 11 chapters. When John talks about light and Jesus being the light, it's, it's often almost exclusively, but not exclusively, a reference to salvation. But here, it's more than that. This is different. In fact, uh, renowned scholar D.A. Carson says, this verse is a masterpiece of planned ambiguity. In other words, what he's saying is John is widening the lens here. Yes, it's about salvation, but it's about so much more than that. Yes, it's about God's light entering to bring salvation, but it's deeper than that. And I believe in the context, 
What, what John is doing is he's making it bigger and broader than just salvation. And here's what I believe John is saying about Jesus. This is our third and final point. Jesus is the source of new beginnings. Life in Christ is a life of constant new beginnings. Someone has said that God is the God of second chances. But I have to be honest with you, that doesn't encourage me very much. Because I need a third and a fourth and a fifth and a tenth and a one hundredth chance. Because I blow it in the same ways over and over again. If God had one chance and he gave us a second chance and that was it, I'd be doomed, to be honest with you. But God is a God of infinite chances. Our God is a God of constant new beginnings. Now certainly we're going to see that there's a beginning to our faith, right? This is called the new birth. We're going to read about this in John chapter 3, that a person must be born from above. And so at one point in a person's life, and maybe you can trace the exact time, and maybe you can't. And if you can't, that's okay if you don't know the exact moment. But at some point in a person's life, God works in such a way to bring that person to repentance, to bring that person to the awareness of his or her own sinfulness in light of God's holiness, and that God brings that person to a place where he or she says, I can't do this. I am separated from God. I am an enemy of God. I need salvation. I'm believing in Jesus Christ. I'm trusting in who he was. I'm trusting that he died on the cross, not just a death for generic sin, but for my own sin, my own rebellion. And I'm trusting that on the cross, he took my place. I'm believing in that. I'm believing that he was raised from the dead. I believe that he's coming again. At some point in our lives, God brings us to a place, If those of us who are in Christ, to a place of confession, repentance, and faith. And I know that's the story for so many of you this morning. And if it's not your story, today can be the day where you put your faith in Jesus. So certainly there's a beginning to our salvation we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's beloved Son. Our identity is refashioned and remade. We go from being enemies of God to being sons and daughters of God. This only happens, again, when we believe on Jesus Christ, when we receive the gift of salvation by faith. But here's the deal. That's not the end of God's recreating work. That's not the end of God's activity in our life. God has plenty of new beginnings for those who are his. Every day is, an, is a new expression of his love for us. The Psalms tell us that God's mercies are new every morning. Every morning is a new beginning for us. A chance to receive afresh the goodness of God in Christ. A chance for us to rest anew in the completed work of Jesus Perhaps it's a chance to enjoy a deeper faith, the kind produced by the Spirit's work. Maybe the new beginning that Jesus has for you even today is the assurance of forgiveness. And we know for those who are in Christ, those who put their faith in Jesus, they are forgiven once for all. All the past sins, all the current sins, all the future sins, nothing can stand against you or condemn you. Your forgiveness, His forgiveness is yours, but the experience of forgiveness it often comes day by day, doesn't it? Sometimes even moment by moment. God's grace to you today may be a fresh experience of His forgiveness. Maybe you're someone who's lived your whole life in self-protection mode. 
living in fear of what's next, striving endlessly to project this perfect image so that everybody would think of you a certain way. But now a new beginning has come. And God is freeing you from those fears and allowing you to take risks. Allowing you to love people who may not even love you in return. Because today, God, in this new beginning, is helping you to understand just how much He loves you in Jesus. You might be a person who's critical of everything and everyone. And, and, and we know that that sort of criticism comes from a place of insecurity. Well, today, maybe God, God's new beginning for you is He's enabling you to see who you really are in Him. Loved and accepted without condition. And maybe as that reality sort of washes over you, God is bringing you to a place where you're going to be less critical of other people because you realize that you were loved when you had nothing to give in return. God's constantly in the business of recreating. You might be the sort of person who's never been happy with your situation. But today, God is helping you to see how generous he's been to you. And he is, the new beginning God has for you is he's actually restoring to you the joy of his salvation. See, God's activity in us doesn't end at conversion. There's something that God is doing at every moment for his own. A new work that he's beginning in Jesus Christ. I have a friend, and I'll close with this illustration. I have a friend who's one of my best friends. And uh, his mother is just a wonderful woman. And uh, I've had a chance to have dinner with their family. And she's been under my ministry a few times in preaching ministry. And she's just such a, a great, sweet lady. She's a sophisticated woman with advanced degrees. She's been all over the world. And, but if you talk with her very long, you realize she doesn't really believe that people can change. In fact, my friend, my, my, my very good friend, said one time to me, he said, you know, it's kind of discouraging. My mom doesn't believe that people ever really change who they are. Well, nothing could be further from the truth for those who are in Christ. Nothing could be further from the truth for those who are indwelled by the living, powerful Holy Spirit who is about recreating, who is about making things new. Every day is something new because Jesus the Word is doing a new work in those who belong to Him. He is co-equal with the Father. He is the agent of creation. And He is the source of new beginnings. Let's pray.